Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, guys, and thank you, team, for leading us so faithfully this morning. Um, it's a privilege to get to be here and to get to uh, consider God's word uh, together this morning. Um, I'm here because our lead pastor, Chris, is not here. He's out of town. Uh, in fact, he's in um, Scotland right now. So that's a lot of fun. Um, our only assumption is after last week's uh, video that he played of Alistair Begg, he's just over there working on his accent so that he can come back and powerfully deliver uh, God's word. No, 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 really, he's visiting his son, uh, Mark, and his daughter-in-law, Shannon, uh, so we're praying for him and his time there, and that it's restful, and it gets to be uh, filled with making memories um, with his children, and then also that uh, he returns uh, safely home. Uh, but in his absence, we're going to be continuing our study in 1 Samuel. Um, we're going to be picking up now in chapter 29. Uh, we've been going over the past couple of weeks, the narrative in 1 Samuel uh, kind of has been doing this dance back and forth between a chapter about David, a chapter about Saul, a chapter about David, a chapter about Saul. And now we're back to a chapter uh, narrating again about David's story. And then these are all during events that are overlapping. And it isn't, truthfully, it isn't the easiest or the, one of the clearest passages to pick up all on all that's going on in, D, in David's mind and his emotions and his plans and his thoughts. Uh, it's one that is, uh, we find ourselves tripping up a little bit about trying to guess uh, about what he is thinking and what's kind of going on here. Uh, to illustrate when I was thinking about, uh, as I kept reading this passage over and over and thinking about every time that I would read it, it, it was like, I would see one thing about David and I was like, oh, this is it. And then I'd read it the next day and I was like, oh, well now I kind of think it's this. And then I'd read it the next day. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's that. And then the next day, I was like, no, it's something else. And anyways, and I've been jumping back and forth and it reminded me of these images. I don't know if you know what ambiguous images are or perception images or remember these like optical illusions as a kid. Um, but here's probably the most famous one, one of the, the vase or the face, right? Like you either see the vase in the middle or you see two faces looking at each other from the negative space. Um, or also another one that I remember uh, as a kid was this one, which how many of y'all first see the duck? How many of y'all first see the rabbit? Oh, and there's a couple that are like, oh, rabbit. Hmm. Now I see. Now I get it. Uh, or this one uh, as well. I remember as being a kid. Um, and truthfully, I'll, 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 I'll tell a little bit about myself. When I was a kid, I remember this one being the most hard for me. I always saw the young woman looking over her shoulder, and I could never see the old lady. But now I don't know if it's my age or whatever, but now I just see the old lady straight off. And that has nothing to do with you turning 40, babe. Nothing to do with, I want to make it clear. God is my witness. This isn't about that. This is about me making a comment about being old. I wanted to make that clear in the first service. And I still had people come up and been like, oh, yeah, you look at an old lady all the time. I'm like, no, I don't. Come on, be nice. Give me some grace. But you kind of can see it. Of Like when you see one, it's hard to see the other. But then you start seeing the other. And then you switch back to the one. And that's what me dealing with this passage really had been like over and over this week when I began to think about David's motivations uh, and his thoughts in this is that I just kept seeing it from different perspectives. Now, take heart. This isn't, this isn't confusion over the message of the chapter. This is just some confusion over David's expression of uh, us trying to read into what he is thinking. Because the theology is clear. God is clearly at work, and God is at work uh, with his saving grace. Uh, and he is, he is the implementer here, and he is the cause. The message is clear. But being good students of the Bible, um, and because the Bible is so rich as uh, the word of God that is timeless and is applicable to us today, we approach 
appropriately try to find ourselves in the characters of the Bible so that we can appropriate then, uh, appropriately then apply the same messages that God is trying to teach them to us. Um, and so in putting ourselves into David's uh, shoes and trying to gain his motivation, again, this one we'll find ourselves a little bit confusing on, um, but really that should also probably be relatable as well, or at least that struck me as relatable as well, because in truth, we're finding David in a place where he's kind of in a sticky situation. And it's probably a little bit to his own fault. He's messed some things up here. Um, and truthfully, when in this times that I mess up or when I've worked myself into that uh, pigeonhole of a situation, and if you were to stop me and ask, well, what was your motivation or what was your one thought? I don't know if I could name it accurately for myself either, that it would be probably a mixture. And probably the truth of the matter is in David's humanity, we see uh, a conflicting message. Um, we see probably motives that are uh, in himself that he doesn't really understand and that's probably where we can relate to him today. So it's probably not one or the other. It's probably a mixture of both. And I'll leave you with this last ambiguous image that communicates that. Um, and this one's a little trippy. This one, this one kind of messes with my mind. Is he looking at you or is he looking by a profile off to the right? Or is he looking at you or right? And it's truth of the matter, this is a mixture because it's both. And I think that's what we run into with David uh, here in this passage. When we look at his motives, we probably have this mixture of competing or conflicting motivations. But before we read and consider God's text together, a little bit of background, because again, uh, we're just jumping straight into this. We've been going through uh, Samuel for a long time. We've been seeing a story about Saul. We saw Saul, um, uh, because of his disobedience, being stripped of his anointing, um, declared uh, that God's favor has departed from him because he wouldn't obey God. Uh, we see David as uh, being anointed as the next king of Israel. Um, this doesn't sit well with Saul. Saul, in fact, is angered. Um, he's extremely jealous, multiple times he tries to kill David. Um, we've seen Saul in the spiral of out of control, uh, moving down into deeper and deeper and darker and darker places. And in fact, even last week, you saw him in one of his darkest ones in chapter 28, where he goes and consults the witch of Endor, um, sorcery. And there he finds that that spiral at least will come to an end because Samuel uh, comes back and tells him of his final doom, that he and Jonathan will perish. And while we've seen um, this spiraling down of Saul, we've also seen and been mixed in with some of these amazing demonstrations of faith from David. We see David um, time and time again coming where uh, the, the Lord delivers David, gives David an opportunity, or at least presents David with an opportunity to kill Saul. And we see David's faithfulness and saying, no, it's not my opportunity. God, you haven't given me that permission. And David stays his hand. Again, we see David um, uh, ex 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 exhibiting this faith in in God's provision time and time again, counting on a story of deliverance and time and time again, counting on not his plans, but of God's plans. But also over the last couple chapters, we've begun to see a sowing of doubt in David. We begin to see that faith, not necessarily as strong or as sure and some crumbling to it. And in fact, um, especially back in 27, we see that David's faith begins to then be overridden by David's fear. He lets fear override his faith. He trusts God so many times for his salvation, but recently we begin to see David start trusting himself and doing things his own ways. Um, and actually, ironically, in this, um, the narrative of Samuel, although it's confusing in chronological order sometimes, it is very beautiful as far as uh, its, its presentation as a book, um, because as it goes through, it, it, it compares so oftentimes that we're supposed to see David and Saul as these stark contradictions of each other, um, where Saul 
Saul's messing it up and David gets it right. But as we journey and see them going more and more uh, together through this path, we start to see also their uh, similarities and some of their weaknesses start to show up. Um, again, Saul's faults start creeping up in our presence in David. We see his anger towards Nabal. We've considered that one. We see him lying and deceiving Achish. Um, and we begin to start seeing him uh, start doing, following his own ways um, instead of asking God what to do and following God. And so with that, um, we pick back up in this chapter 29. We should consider, we should consider both Saul in a very dark place here, but David's not in the brightest place either. And he's kind of in a dark moment here too. And so with that being covered, let's uh, pick up in the text. Um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel uh, 29, uh, starting at verse 1. We're going to read through the whole chapter. I'm going to invite you to stand out of reverency of uh, the reading of God's word. Um, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading out of the ESV version. Um, if you want to follow along, you can turn it on uh, and navigate along with us. Uh, you can follow what's up on the screen, or you can reach down into the racks in front of you and grab one of those Bibles. We'll be on page 251. Uh, and I do want to mention that if you don't have a copy of God's word that you call your very own, and please take that one uh, as a gift from us to you. We know you'll be blessed by your time reading it. But again, starting in chapter 29, it says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Apec, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who had been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, least in battle, lest in battle he become an adversary, adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seemed right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines." And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What, ha what have you found in your servant from the day I entered into your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the Lord, of, of my Lord, the King? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us into battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servant of your Lord who came with you. And start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, we do, we do thank you that you have given us your word. Father, we thank you for that your word turns our eyes and our focus onto Jesus. And so we pray Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to eliminate, uh, illuminate the words in our minds and our hearts. May he grant us an understanding and the faith to trust and apply it in our lives. And may he provide the strength and the help, and especially the comfort 
both of the times when we get it right, but especially when we get it wrong and mess it up. May we submit always to your way, Father, and to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. So again, this chapter is placing us in the same timeline as our last or our previous chapter. Um, we're finding a lot in this introduction, very similar to the introduction of the setting that we were in um, previously considered. Again, Chris showed us on maps, but if you um, see again on the map of the time of Israel, we have Philist uh, the Philistines uh, occupying Philistia. That's on the um, more on the Mediterranean side, on the coastal regions. You see Israel um, further away from the coastal re regions. Again, um, that largely is because there's a mountain range, right? where the yellow and the uh, purple meet. It's this natural barrier that extends from the south all the way up. And then you see the break there in the middle at where Jezreel is. And then you see where it picks back up in the mountainous regions above. This is the setting. This is the setting where we constantly run into the Philistines coming in and making their way, both because that Jezreel was a lush uh, green area and again in the valley. And so there would be a lot, of, uh, a lot of infrastructure that would be there for growing bread. So that's what they were attacking. Plus it was this natural way to go through the mountains. And so time and time again, we run into uh, the Philistines coming up from Aphek, walking up, marching up to Jezreel, and then attacking Israel. In fact, it kind of bookends uh, whole, our whole chapter because this is the exact same setup that we ran into back in chapter four. And this is how we're again ending the book now here at the last few chapters. That This is just kind of the same song, different verse. Again, looking back down at verse one. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Apec, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Verse 2, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. This is a big army that's coming in. And this verse should probably be shocking to us if we were just jumping straight in, but we've been studying it. And so we know the occasion of why this is coming, um, why David, why he's marching with the Philistines. If we were just reading it this morning and hadn't considered it previously, we should all be gasping out loud at this part and being like, what do you mean David and is marching and a Hebrew is marching against the Hebrews? This doesn't make sense. And maybe again, even in this story, we should still be struck with that. But back in 27, we begin to see where David flees his, uh, his own people, God's uh, chosen country and land, and retreats in his own ways, in his own minds, trying to find favor with the Philistines. There he buddies up with the king, Achish, and he swears allegiance against Israel. Then he goes about on his campaigns and he goes and he attacks cities or um, uh, he goes attacks strongholds of warring nations that would also be Israel's enemies. But instead of reporting that, he comes back and he lies to Achish uh, and tells him instead that he has been fighting and killing Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews. And so he's coming back and he's basically just been entering into the service out of God's land, out of, um, out of, of God's plan for him and his safety to trust in, uh, in his deliverance. And instead is trying to make it up on his own and finding favor with the Philistines. And he's been living this duplicitous and deceiving life, um, basically just constantly in a time of, of acting and telling lies and just trying to weave this web of deceit. 
This gains David a ton of favor by Achish. And in fact, um, we've run into previously that Achish then rewards him by making him uh, his bodyguard. Uh, Chris preached on this very well and, and brought to light um, the literal Hebrew there of bodyguard uh, means keeper of the head or watchman of the head, one who watches the head. Um, and the irony, as Chris pointed out, that David, the man who took the previous champion's head, Goliath, off of his shoulder, now is going to Philistine, the Philistine army and to the king and pledging to be the new Goliath. And again, a sign of uh, a lot of confusion of what's going on here. But we'll run into this head language again in this passage. Achish tells David that he's going to march with him. And then we um, previously had considered that David just has this very confusing statement of his intent. We don't really know what's going on when he says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And so is this David's master plan to march with the Philistines? Um, and yet then at the moment of battle, turn and attack the Philistines? Uh, we don't know. Is this David may perhaps finally giving up on uh, this idea of preserving the anointed one and just saying, hey, I think I get, this is an opportunity. I can go with the Philistines. I can kill Saul and I can go in and then finally claim what's mine. Um, does David even have a plan at this point in the story? Is he just kind of making it up as he goes along? And he's like, I don't know what to do. Or what I probably think, um, but again, all of it is still a little confusing and muddled, but I, I kind of lean towards this is David caught up in his lies long enough that he doesn't have any other choice to go. He was living this duplicit lifestyle, not being truthful, and now that deception has caught up to him, and he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. We're not sure, but we, we are sure is Achish uh, wants him to go with him, and David agrees. But not everybody thinks this is a good idea. Look down at verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines say, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. So Achish thinks this is a good idea to have David. The Philistine commanders don't. They don't think so. Um, they're essentially saying we're going to fight the Hebrews. Why do we have Hebrews with us? And Achish goes to David's defense and he uses a very interesting phrase. He says, is this not David? almost counting on the commanders to know of the rapport or the reputation of David as a warrior. And so he says, is this not David? Uh, essentially saying he's been with me for some maybe 16, 17 months, and he's done nothing but good for me. And yet in that plea, the commanders, they don't buy it. I don't, I don't buy it. Again, I don't know necessarily if the commanders know the real version of the stories that David's been telling. Maybe they know David's been not attacking Israel uh, and been attacking Israel's enemies and just lying. Maybe they know that, so they know they can't trust him. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just simply, again, that they just have a problem. They're like, we're going to fight the Hebrews. Why on earth would we bring Hebrews with us? Maybe it's just that simple. Or again, maybe they're just, they, maybe they see Achish as a foolish king and they easily see through uh, David and they're not convinced that, that David may dupe Achish, but he's not very convincing to them. Um, but again, they don't, they don't trust David and they think he'll turn against them. And it's interesting in the reply because they, they kind of throw Achish's words back at him. Specifically, continuing in verse 4, he says, For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Remember that play on word with heads? 
Remember, he was just now tasked to being the watcher of the king's head. Essentially, it may be that the, that the Philistine commanders here are saying, oh yeah, you made him watcher of your head. He's going to be watching your head and he's going to be watching our head and he's going to be watching the men's head. Why is he watching? Not to protect because he's going to lop them off and that's how he's going to get favor back with Saul. They throw these words back at him. And even more, again, um, in verse 5, we see Achish trying to, again, defend David, um, but with this rhetorical question of saying, um, uh, well, haven't you heard of him? Haven't you heard of his renown? Is this not David? And those words they throw right back at Achish, verse 5, is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Again, a verse that we have seen and run into in our past study of Samuel, the first time to make Saul very jealous. This time, uh, apparently, it wasn't just a song spread amongst Israel. It was a song that spread even to the Philistines' lands, and they knew of this. And we've been talking on the podcast, and we've been joking with uh, Colson and with John, um, really about, like, is this just a, is this message spread because David's uh, acts are so renowned um, that it just goes out farther and farther, and everybody just knows about it, thus then they know about the song? Um, or as Colson was joking about uh, uh, earlier this week in our podcast about, or is it just a really snappy tune? Like it was just really catchy uh, that is just kind of spread through there. Of course, the more mu- musical minded one would come up with that solution. And so I thought maybe a good exercise this morning, because uh, I couldn't picture this song as a snappy uh, hip tune. And I thought we'd invite Colson to come back up on stage and lead us in this song. Uh, but then to, to save him uh, a little bit of that uh, embarrassment, I actually did just for happenstance Google it. And I came across this guy, and it just humored me. So I thought I'd share. It goes on for like another two and a half minutes. It's really, it's, it's really funny. So it's at least worth a listen, but not worth taking up two and a half more minutes of our time. Um, so Colson's spared from this morning, but good news because the passage tells us this isn't just a song, but it's a song and a dance. So Colson next week, he can teach us the interpretive dance of that instead. So we have something to look forward to. But, but Achish here, he hears these words thrown back at him uh, and probably uh, just as a, a character witness of himself, uh, in his weakness, he buys into them. Um, he's persuaded by his commanders. Um, we don't, again, we don't really know fully of like how much to blame of Achish says this, but it does at least somewhat hint that Achish is not a role model of a good leader. Um, whether again, he's just being duped by David and you should clearly see through him. Uh, we don't know, but he is apparently a poor leader. He's failing to convince his commanders. He's failing to enact his authority as king and just dictate to them what to do. Um, he doesn't assert himself here, but he just gives in um, nothing much of aspiration to try to achieve uh, by looking up to Achish. But we do still run into this question of what are these Hebrews doing here? Why are they here? Um, this seems like a question that shouldn't be coming out of the mouth of uh, the Philistines and told to us. This seems like a question that David should be telling us, right? It seems like David first should be asking himself this question. What, why, why am I leading Hebrews out to war against my people? 
I mean, he should at least know that he doesn't belong marching against God. He doesn't belong marching against God's chosen people. And so it seems like a question he should be asking. Or next best, it seems like a question his men should be asking and communicating. They should be going to David and saying, David, what are we doing? Why are we marching against your whole people? Interesting, it struck me because could you imagine a world where David would still be in God's promised land and still have a Jonathan not too far away to come to him? Could you imagine Jonathan being amongst David as one of David's men? And I couldn't imagine a world where Jonathan would not ask this question. That he wouldn't be the one to step up and say, David, what are we doing taking Hebrews against Hebrews? What are we doing here? And I think he would not stand for David making this mistake. But again, the sad part of this and the irony of it is Saul, uh, Jonathan's not here to correct David because he's with Saul, the very army that he's going to march against. He's not just marching against Saul, but he's actually marching against his friend. I think, again, this, is, this isn't, in my mind, this isn't David's master plan of working all these things out so that then now he gets to um, march in and then turn on the Philistines. I think he's just caught again at the end of his own wits. I think he was taking things and matters in his own hands, doing what he thought, stopped seeking the Lord, and now he finds himself in this predicament that he has no way, uh, no other choice but to march with the King Achish and the Philistines. F.B. Myers, in his commentary, put it uh, very concisely, and so I thought it would be worth putting on the screen to share. He says it and writes, to what a plight had 18 months of deceit brought him, meaning David. He had no alternative other than to follow King Achish to battle, but it must have been with a sinking heart. It looked as if he would be forced to fight Saul, the Lord's anointed, and Jonathan, his friend, and the people whom he was one day to rule. I think David's been doing what's right in his own eyes. I think he's lost his faith through fear. I think he's turned to Achish's provision. Um, I think he's lied over and over and over again, hedging his bets that this would work out somehow. And I think his deceit has caught up to him. And now he's caught up in marching against Israel. As reminded, Sir Walter Scott, a poem uh, wrote, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I think this imagery of this web that David has been weaving is uh, coming all the more when I keep reading this, that David's now caught up in his own collapsing uh, web. But miraculously, even though everything's collapsing around him, even though he seems to be marching against his own people, God miraculously intervenes and delivers him from such a fate by giving uh, the commanders uh, the uh, excuse to go to the king and convince the king to dismiss David. And so we would expect, I would expect that Achish then dismisses David to go home. And then I would expect that David then uh, immediately praises God for his deliverance, that he sees that this is God's hand delivering him from his own mistakes. I would just, expect that he would repent over his deception uh, and that, that he would apologize for taking things in his own hand and responding out of fear and instead re renew his faith in the Lord and turn back to God and ask him, what should I now be doing? Um, but that's not what we read, right? That's not how it plays out. Verse six, it continues. Then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you. So go back now, go peaceably, that you may not displease the Lord, Lords of the Philistines. And David whined to Achish. It doesn't actually say that, but I imagine it being that way. And David said to Achish, but what, what have I done? What have, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered into your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King? 
I mean, wait, what? This is David's response? This is how David's going to respond to being dismissed? You'd think David would be relieved, but no, he whines back at Achish about himself and his own innocence. But what have I done? I'm innocent. This is actually the fourth time we've run into David using this line across uh, 1 Samuel. The first time he, he says it, he says it rightly to his brothers um, at the time when he's going in uh, to fight Goliath and he emerges on the battlefield and they ask him and they basically condemn him of like he has no place there. And he says, what have I done? He claims his innocence of being there. He's just there obeying his father, delivering food to them, and then now stands up to this opportunity to kill Goliath. The previous past two times he's used this, he's used this rightly with Saul um, when Saul's trying to kill him and he says, what have I done? And so it may be that this is just a pattern that's kind of worked out for David in the past. And so he's just implementing it again as like his next thought here. And so he claims his own innocence and says, what, what have I done here? And again, this should be where David recognizes God's deliverance, but instead he claims deception and he continues to proclaim his own innocence. Again, I was convicted to David here. You know, David was rejected by the Philistine commanders. And instead of seeing the Lord's favor in this moment, he instead is caught up and still tries to earn man's favor. He's lost some men's favor and he's still trying to earn men's favor instead of turning to the Lord. I wrote it for myself how easy it is for me to seek the approval of man and neglect seeing God's plan of righteousness in my life, calling me for his approval only, right? Paul writes to uh, the Galatians in chapter one, verse 10 says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We are never to let the approval of the world come against us seeking the approval of our Lord through his word. But David falls into this temptation. He's still holding on to this as his ways, his plans. Um, he's still thinking I can work this out in a way that I can continue to escape the land and go back to Philistia and I can continue to um, find my safe haven there under Achish and living this lie of, of uh, a, a duplicit lifestyle that then is saying I'm doing one thing, but I'm really doing another thing. Um, but in verse nine, if we pick back up, Achish answers David with some really strong words here. I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us into us to the battle. Then now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. A really strong phrase, blameless in my sight as of an angel of God. This is God, Yahweh. This is, this, is, this is the God of Israel that Achish is citing here. In fact, this is the second time that Achish acknowledges God in this passage. Um, some comment, commentaries like to, um, again, prop David up and say, this is a sign that David has lived uh, such a holy life, even in the uh, uh, camp of the Philistines, that even Achish is being more convinced um, by his loyalty to God, that he acknowledges God. I, I don't really buy into that camp because also probably more likely it is very customary of this time. Um, and you get it a lot, even in extra biblical writings, um, when uh, a person of prominence would write it, another person of prominence that um, almost out of obligation, they would 
claim their, that their message is true or that they're complimenting them by acknowledging the God of the other person. Um, because again, this is a polytheistic world um, that uh, the Philistines were polytheistic. And so they had many, many gods. And so there's probably Achish's has no problem with the God of Israel, just like he has no problem really with Dagon, his God, or all the other gods that he has in this. So I think he's just paying David uh, lip service here, complimenting him, calling out uh, on God's name. But it is also interesting that it, both in this chapter and back in 27, the only time the name of the Lord is provoked is out of Achish's mouth and not out of David's. The only time in these two chapters we run into the Lord's name being spoken or somebody acknowledging the Lord um, it comes out of this, Philistine's, uh, this Philistine king's mouth. And so again, you'd expect once again for David to hear Achish acknowledge his God and then for David to respond, finally seeing the truth of his deliverance and turn to God to ask, what should I do next? But no, he continues into his own plan, um, trying to once being freed from this tangle of web that he has uh, been weaving only to go back and try to spin some more. Verse 11, so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And while, again, we've been a bit confused about David's entire motivation through this chapter, I don't think we can, um, we, we can't miss that despite David's plans, we do see a God who is in control, a God who is working on the behalf of David, that is going to save David from this plight of his own folly, and yet, and yet is going to see this as moment. Even when David doesn't turn and acknowledge him, he's still going to give grace to David, and he's still going to deliver him. Don Constable in his commentary um, wrote it well enough. I wanted to share that with you. Uh, this chapter is an encouraging revelation of how God takes care of his own when they are under extreme stress and not entirely obedient. In short, God providentially caused the reactions of the people as different as those reactions were to protect David. Even when we don't sense it, God cares for us as a shepherd. And God is faithful to David in this story, even when David isn't the most faithful to God. And again, I think if any of us can relate to the story of this idea of not being totally faithful to God, being caught up in our own ways, having our plans that we think we can work this out, and then being faced with how that's crumbling around us and how those, those plans aren't going to work out, and the temptation that sometimes comes out of our flesh to just continue to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps instead of turning to God for his plans and, and deliverance and confessing of the ways that we're messing it up, we can totally relate to how David gets caught up in his own self-sufficiency and continues to to just work things out, thinking he can bring about good in this. But I tell you, if that's the same boat that you find yourself in, you find yourself caught up in all this mess that you're doing and sin's part at the root of that, and you think you can somehow fix this and you're acting erroneously. It's only God who can work, even through our mistakes, for his glory and for our good. This is what the Apostle Paul tells the church uh, uh, in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So again, even, even when we're messing things up and things are crushing down and we have the temptation to continue in flesh, God's message is, no, come back to me. Because even in you messing it up, you're not gonna mess it up strong enough that I am not stronger and I can still put this right for my glory. And so as we're finishing and closing, two, two quick thoughts. I wanna spend the last couple of minutes by considering this. One, again, a relatable thought of how did David get to this point? And then second, how... This question that we're going to be kind of teetering with that we're going to get a glimpse into and comment, but really we're going to have to wait a couple of weeks for Chris 
picks back up and continues. Does David stay at this point or does he turn back to God? You know, I think the, again, the first one I can relate to and, um, and I can find myself in David easy, easiest here because uh, it isn't just that David was doing everything so well and then in one day decision fell off the wagon and then just burned all these bridges and started acting out not in faith. Um, it isn't that he just went from, again, thinking about a man after God's own heart. It isn't that's just this, when you think of the boy that slayed Goliath, when you think of um, a righteousness and a trust and a faith that bonded his soul with a man like Jonathan, um, when you think of uh, all the times that he was patient and waiting and not killing Saul, even though he had every opportunity, uh, when you think of this man, you don't think of a David then who overnight abandons his trust in God, um, abandoning his own country, fleeing to Israel's enemy to live a life of deception. I think that where we find David, David is on the slippery slope. Again, it isn't oftentimes that we're on the mountaintop uh, commu- communing with God, uh, we're listening and obeying his words that all of a sudden then we find ourselves at the next step uh, faced with a cliff that we just fall off onto into moral failure. No, uh, most of the time, most of the time we can relate to David here of uh, sin often has just a slippery slope of small steps further and further away from God's plans, but more and more towards our plans. This is where we find David. David's biggest problem isn't Saul. David's biggest problem isn't the Philistines. David's biggest problem is himself and his plans. I think the truth of the matter, again, is that sin doesn't creep up on like up on us all of a sudden, but really we give into it little by little by little, and we think that these small steps, we don't realize that they add up more to big steps, um, and then realize when it's a little bit too late. It isn't that tomorrow, I was writing again for myself in reflection, it isn't that tomorrow that I'm going to go out and rob a bank, but it may be today that when the cashier overpays me for my groceries and I notice, I may just be tempted to just not make comments and fold it up and put it in my pocket. Then it may be next spring when I say to myself that I deserve this money and government doesn't really need it. And so I fudge a number or two and I don't necessarily report what I got paid to do that funeral or, or that wedding service or something like that. And I could be talking about stealing, I could be talking about lying, I could be talking about pride, I could be talking about anger, I could be talking about slothfulness, um, about infidelity, I could be talking about any host of sins here in any array, and the truth of the matter is, is that we as humans are so easy to deceive ourselves that these are just little sins. These are just occasional things. These are things that can just build up and build up, and they don't really, I'm still in control. I still got this. And the lesson here is that we're not supposed to scoff at David and think, oh, I'll never do that. But I think we're supposed to see ourselves in the same pattern that David's shown is that these little things just keep distracting him. And this will be a pattern that we'll get um, when we see again uh, in 2 Samuel with Bathsheba. Um, there's a book called Devoted by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, this quote always comes to mind when I think about this process. It is always a shock to our pride when we discover that we are sinners and not merely people who occasionally sin. And so I think the encouragement is that we don't think too highly of ourselves, that we don't think we still got this in our power, but we turn to the one who is our savior and has the power to accomplish the deliverance of our sins. And then that second thought of, and where does David stay with this? Um, because again, this is a little bit of just a small comment, but uh, chapter 11 doesn't start off with David repenting either. Uh, in fact, David has to go through a couple more losses before he realizes it. I wish I could say that after this, he realizes again the folliness as he's hiking home uh, while he still has all this support around him. But no, it takes the stripping away of even that because David's going to return back and he's going to find the town has been sacked by the Amalekites. He's going to see that it's been burned and pillaged and he's going to find that his wives have been taken from him. 
David in this chapter loses favor from God. In the next chapter, he's going to lose his own wives. And even right after that, it even gets a little bit darker because then even his men turn on him. There's a line in there where they want to stone him and kill him. It takes David, before he realizes the effect of his sin, it takes him uh, losing the favor of men, it takes him losing his wives, and it takes him losing even the support of his, all his men around him. And at that place of brokenness, when he's finally at the rope's end, then he finally turns to God and proclaims out to him and begins to seek him for the wisdom. And so I would say as application and encouragement again for us this morning, that if you find yourself in that spinning web of sin that you've just been living with in those small compromises and compromises, and you feel like it's going more and more out of control, don't be like David and don't let you, don't let it go on until you have to hit rock bottom and it's all stripped away before you turn to the Lord. No, the Lord is powerful enough to save you of that sin when it started at, at rock bottom and at the end, but even now, And so turn to him even today and say, I don't want to go any further in this and give it over to him. Uh, Confess that sin and allow him to do only what he can do, um, which is to save us from it. Because that's the truth of the matter. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. Yet we have not yet been removed of the presence of sin yet. He will do that one day. He has saved us of, of the penalty of sin. And yet we still live in the presence of sin. But today he's daily offering us his power Not to be caught up in the power of sin anymore, but to be daily confessing to him to say, no, Lord, we need you. We need you to remove and do what only you can do, which is to save us. One day, remove it. But for now, use your power to work in me and allow the spirit to do, uh, to allow me not to fall into that sin. So I think that's our message of application. I think that's what we'll move into our time of invitation. Um, Colson and his team are going to come back up and they're going to lead us in one more song. Um, as we uh, are wrapping things up with this point of invitation, we, we always go to this time because we assume that you know, God's word, you've read it, you've heard it, uh, and we assume that God's word goes out and doesn't return void as he has declared upon us. So we just invite y'all to do diligence with the Holy Spirit and ask him, where do you need to respond uh, after considering his word? And maybe if it is that the first time you're hearing this and you're thinking about your role as a sinner in front of an ever holy and righteous God, and if you have any doubt that God has forgiven you of that sin, or if you have any doubt that you've ever turned to him and asked him to remove that sin, uh, then don't let today go by without um, proclaiming him as Lord and confessing that sin and allowing him to save you. If you have any questions about what that looked like, ask whoever brought you here. Come forward and ask one of us. We'd love to share with you about our good Savior who can rescue us from our sins. Or maybe it is that um, you've gone through the welcome home uh, process, you've met with the team, uh, and you know that you need a church family like this, that we just declare with one another, and we need each other as a provision from the Lord in our own lives to help be accountable for our sins, uh, to encourage us to out of our sins, and to uh, help us walk in the good works that he has set out in front of us. If you've gone through that process and you want to make church membership known, now's the time to do it. Um, Or maybe you need to come and pray, or maybe you need to pray with somebody on the right side of the room. Whatever it is, I'm going to invite you to a posture of standing and singing. You can take whatever posture you need to do, and I just encourage you to respond as the Lord leads.